In our last episode, Beatrice Bainbridge, long the subject of Charlie Berger's obsession and discourtesy, finally fled southern Illinois on a secret train to Pennsylvania after a warning from her father that her husband's activities would get her killed. The children were left behind. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 10 Don't Pull That Gun, Aura Beatrice was gone. Minnie was still in Danville. Charlene was now in her father's custody, given over to him by Bob Bainbridge, who no longer wanted Berger stopping by the house asking questions about Beatrice. Despite the freedom accorded him, Berger was no better able to manage his affairs than during the months in Danville. As it always had and always would, trouble clung to him like a virus. Less than a month after his release, he again appeared in a courtroom as a defendant, this time before Judge A.G. Abbey, on account of possessing intoxicating liquor. He pled guilty and on November 13th was sentenced to six months in the county jail and fined $1,000. By his own account, he paid that fine on January 28th. On February 6th, Berger stepped into his cell. Between the sentencing and the serving of that sentence, Heron witnessed another shootout, this one involving two of her most noted antagonists. In the background of this murderous throwback to the Old West may well have been Charlie Berger, who had seen the western frontier in its twilight years. It was no secret in Williamson County that Berger's friend, Ora Thomas, had vowed to kill S. Glenn Young. According to Leonard Stearns, Thomas had even told Sam Stearns, who happened to be a relative by marriage, that the time would come, and soon, when either he or Young would kill the other. On the night of January 24th, one observer watched Thomas as he cleaned his guns in the sheriff's quarters at Marion. Mentioning casually that he might not be returning, Thomas made it very clear that a confrontation was imminent. That knowledge was possibly shared by others, Charlie Berger among them. A man who once served as Berger's collector and bodyguard claims that he, Berger, John Howard and two other men were in or near the European Hotel in Heron the night of January 24th 1925. Days before, so the story goes, Berger heard that a battle was in the offing. That S. Glenn Young, the man who had insulted him at Danville and who had insulted and pistol-whipped his way out of the good graces of Williamson County residents, was to be repaid in full for the wreckage he had caused. A price had been put on Young's head even before he came to Williamson County. The attempt on his life in the Oakville Bottoms in 1924 resulting in the blinding of Mrs. Young but only minor wounds to Young himself, was an effort by bootleggers to rid themselves of this dry raider with a craving for publicity. With Thomas, however, it was a personal matter. More than once, this very proud man had publicly been insulted by Young. I think when Ora Thomas walked into the cannery cigar store, he was crazy with hatred for Glenn Young, said Arlie O. Boswell, who, though on opposite sides of the political fence from Thomas, liked the man and thought him an effective law officer. 
In contrast, Boswell, along with many other clansmen, had grown to appreciate Esclan Young about as much as a rattlesnake. The night of January 2nd found Heron policeman Ross Lisenby firing a pistol into one of the columns in front of Gualdani's drugstore in Heron. For what it's worth, Sam Stearns once told Boswell that Lisenby was a crack shot who could shoot the very sparrows off a telephone wire while leaning out the window of a speeding automobile. After they heard the shot, Young and some of his subordinates drove over to investigate, but apparently they found nothing, because a few minutes later they drove away. Later in the evening, while patrolling the streets, Young and friends saw a man, Elias Green, in the Canary Cigar Store, which was located on the ground floor of the European Hotel. Convinced that Green had spread tales that he was one of the strike breakers at the Leicester Strip Mine in 1922, Young swaggered in and began to curse the fellow. Walking down the street following his attendance as bailiff in Judge Bowen's city court, Ora Thomas heard the commotion and went to investigate. When he saw his longtime enemy standing in the doorway, Young warned, Don't pull that gun, Ora. Despite the warning, Ora's as well as other guns were pulled, and shots were fired. Then only smoke and silence ensued. When the curious arrived, they found a dying S. Glenn Young with two bullets in his chest, and two of his bodyguards, Ed Forbes and Homer Warren, dead or dying. Dying, too, was their enemy, the delicately handsome Ora Thomas, a man whose questionable associations were offset by his defiance of Young, even at the cost of his life. Thomas died in the Heron Hospital, presumably Young's last victim. But was he? When the firing ceased, someone who had been lying on the settee between the two antagonists, in order to protect himself raised up, saw the somewhat dazed Ora Thomas, standing, staring, and holding a smoking pistol, and in his panic, shot the anti-clansman through the head. So said Arlie O. Boswell, who presented the evidence to the coroner's jury, and Leonard Stearns, who was a member of that jury. Later, State's Attorney Boswell, like those on the jury, did nothing to discourage the widespread belief that Young and Thomas had neatly eliminated each other. It was felt through the county that the two deaths might bring an end to the bloodshed that had made Heron a dirty word throughout the United States. In consequence, Young's much-publicized funeral was almost a celebration, according to Stearns who was S. Glenn Young's last surviving pallbearer. This, then, is the Bare Bones account, one that is held to be true and probably is true as far as it goes. But there is more, much more. Arlie O. Boswell said that his one regret from the four years he served as Williamson County's state's attorney was that he did not investigate more fully the young Thomas Killings. He had his reasons for not doing so, of course. As stated, the citizens were sick of the killings, and wanted desperately to return to normalcy. Mrs. Thomas, in particular, had requested that the inquiry be completed as quickly as possible. And I believed that poor woman had suffered enough, added Boswell. He placed little credence in the rumor that Young was one of the strike breakers in the Leicester Mine Riot of 1922, but that rumor has survived the years. Equally intriguing, the account given by Berger's collector points to a conspiracy rather than a fatal chance encounter, as Boswell and numerous others believed. Days before the shootout, he asserted, Berger tried to dissuade Thomas from killing Young but was unsuccessful. 
Perhaps the gangster thought such an act would only inflame the clan forces, uniting them once again into a concentrated effort against the bootleggers. At last, however, Berger relented. On the night of the shooting, four of his men were positioned in the lobby of the European Hotel, while he, oddly enough, sat in a car parked nearby. Following the shooting, his men jumped in that car, but rather than depart from the scene, they drove around the streets of Heron observing the developments while reveling in the fact that they had helped make history in typical Williamson County fashion. Even if at the time Harrisburg was alive with rumors that Berger might be involved in the young Thomas killings, with one exception his name escaped mention in the area newspapers in that connection. The Klan newspaper, the Heron Herald, suggested that he might have been the stranger that Heron policeman Harry Walker had seen in the company of Judge E. N. Bowen just before the shooting. From the issue of January 29, 1925, there was the following. Buried deep in the flow of words from Harry Walker was a statement that was not followed out but which indicated the presence in the chambers of City Judge Bowen in the company of Bowen and Deputy Sheriff Thomas of a very mysterious stranger who remained until the end of the hearing and then was lost sight of. This mysterious stranger did not leave the city hall with the party and was not mentioned except by Walker. Judge Bowen, who was questioned only briefly and not at all upon this point, mentioned the presence of a neighbor but was the only witness to name such a man. Walker swore that the man was a stranger to whom he had been introduced by Judge Bowen or Thomas, whose name he had forgotten and whom he thought was from Chicago. Walker testified that himself, Lizenby, and Thomas were in the judge's chambers at intervals with a stranger who, of course, might have been the neighbor of Judge Bowen, but did not show himself before the others in the courtroom. That this man may have been Charles Berger, former roadhouse and gambling house owner of the halfway house last fall, the killer of another man at the same place a few days previously and credited with having killed a total of six or eight men, there is a suspicion. In addition, Berger is said to have been seen in the proximity of the county jail in Marion an hour or so after the shooting here. Mention was also made of the presence of strangers, well-dressed youths with the unmistakable stamp of gangsters, who arrived in Heron and Pears on trains from different directions, were seen about the streets Saturday afternoon in a group or in pairs and at different times in the company of Oratom and then vanished. Interviewed by many reporters over the years, Berger was rarely, if ever, questioned about the killing of S. Glenn Young. Later, while maintaining his innocence of committing a certain crime, he did admit that a kind of justice might be at work after all, since he had gone unpunished for similar offenses in the past. At the time he made the statement, the charge was murder. Chapter 11 The Start of Shady Rest with the clanging shut of the cell door on February 6th, Berger once again found himself in a familiar environment. This time, however, the facilities were far less grand than those that had been provided by his host in Vermilion County. This was the kind of jail that put prisoners in their places, alongside winged roaches and the grime of the ages. In a habeas corpus petition dated March 4th, 1925, that he sent to Judge D.T. Hartwell of Marion, one of the circuit judges of the 1st Judicial District, the prisoner states his case. On the 6th day of February, A.D., your petitioner was incarcerated in the county jail by the said sheriff of said county, John Small, and has been detained of his liberty since that time. Your petitioner is now suffering with tuberculosis 
and has continued to grow worse ever since his said incarceration. Said jail of said county is in an unhealthy condition that about two weeks ago a fire occurred in said jail by the burning of old, filthy, and diseased mattresses, whereby your petitioner was overcome by the poisonous gases in consequence of said fire and fell helpless to the floor and has been suffering extreme pain thereafter in consequence of said fire. In his booklet, Mean Old Jail, Curtis Small tells how a disgruntled prisoner had set fire to a mattress that had been liberally soaked with bug juice. The ensuing smoke billowing forth, filling the narrow quarters, sent Berger and fellow prisoners to the floor. When John Small's wife Cora heard the gasping and crying for help, she ran to see what was the matter. Being there alone, her husband and his deputies were busy bird-dogging moonshiners at the time. She was at first reluctant to open the door, but when Charlie gave his word that any SKP would answer to him, she finally turned the key that released the prisoners into the fresh air. No one escaped. Sheriff Small and his prisoner appeared before Judge Hartwell in the county courthouse on March 7th. There, the sheriff gave his reason for jailing Berger. On March 9th, Judge Hartwell ruled that since the prisoner had already paid the $1,000 fine, both sentences and judgments of the court could not be legally imposed on the defendant under the information in this case. It is ordered that the defendant, Charles Berger, be now released and fully discharged from jail. Lifting his spirit like a tonic, freedom allowed the former prisoner to fulfill a dream of long standing, the building of shady rest. North on Route 13, where the oak trees stood, would be the barbecue stand, so Beatrice was told. He did not tell her of the roadhouse. South of the road stood a ramshackle shed, the abode of prostitutes Charlie brought in from St. Louis. From such humble beginnings came what was to be, for its kind and time, an entertainment complex of note throughout southern Illinois. What did he really have in mind at the time? Like everyone else in the area, Berger knew that a concrete highway would soon connect Harrisburg and Marion, except for no man's land, a two-mile stretch of grade on the Williamson-Saline line, and another short stretch just west of Harrisburg. This highway was a fact by the close of 1923. Unfortunately for Berger, the months of lounging in Danville had delayed his building plans. Sometime in 1925, work began on what later would be called, with justification, the most notorious resort in the south end of the state. Serving the needs of the casual motorist, the barbecue stand near the highway provided sandwiches, soda pop, and candy bars. The floor was sawdust. Mitchell Oil Station of Marion, where Berger and his men bought their gasoline, had a gas pump set up in front. Outside, picnic tables completed the decor. If by chance the customer wanted something stronger than soda pop, the man in charge, often Honest John Renfro, formerly of Hardin County, would pull up from the cooler a bottle of beer, and if something even stronger was desired, Honest John could be counted on to step out the back to fetch a jar or jug of moonshine. To passing motorists, the barbecue stand with its sawdust floor came to symbolize Shady Rest. A fact, no doubt, that pleased Berger immensely. Apart from the power plant, the real center, however, was the cabin in the woods. It was set in a clearing north of the road. Built in the autumn of 1925 at a cost of several thousand dollars, it combined a rustic decor with modern conveniences. Once past the chinked logs and the overalled farm boys clutching their rifles, a visitor realized that it was quite a piece of workmanship. 
Gracing the east and west ends of the cabin were deer heads and elk antlers, the former staring glassily above either of the two stone fireplaces. Other antlers could be seen along the log walls, as well as numerous old guns. Offsetting the rustic appearance were such modern conveniences as running water, a bathroom, and electric lights, the latter supplied by the power plant on the premises. Off-limits to visitors, the basement was used for the cutting and coloring of whiskey. Stolen goods were stored there. Behind the cabin was a large building made of corrugated metal, where dogfights and cockfights were held. Gamblers from the nearby towns and from as far away as Indiana and Tennessee gathered here in the autumn months to place their bets and to coax on the fighters of their choice. Next time, they had a shootout there in the chicken arena. Me and Boots stood behind one of those big old-fashioned pot-bellied stoves and the bullets were going clink-clank as they hit the corrugated metal on the building, you know. <laughs>